Welcome, baseball fans, to episode 10 of the Banished to the Pen podcast, the audio component of the website Banished to the Pen, a group baseball blog produced by fans of Effectively Wild. I am your host, Ryan Sullivan, chairman of NatsGM.com and the baron of all baseball podcasts. This week, I am excited to be joined by two return guests of the podcast and two major contributors to Banish to the Pen. I've got Mikey Poli and Matt Trueblood on the line. Guys, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Hey. So you're, you're really good at that announcer voice, man. That's really good. Thank you. It's very, very <laughs> hacky, but that's the way it's trying to sound. So, well. Uh, <laughs> But uh, thank you, guys. It's great to have you guys back on the line. You guys made some great appearances a while back. And uh, we are going to start first and foremost this week. Uh, Matt, I'm going to give you the floor. Uh, I believe you have a big announcement to share with the audience. Sure. And uh, most people who have interest probably already know. But uh, this, this podcast and future episodes where I might be with you guys, it's going to be the last stuff that I'm doing, at least in front of the camera i guess for banished to the pen uh that's because starting with a piece that went up today i'm going to be writing for baseball prospectus uh two or three times a week for you know as long as sam can resist firing me so it's very exciting stuff uh it's going to be a lot of fun just i mean i'll be doing a lot of the same kind of stuff that i do at banished to the pen uh mixing analysis and commentary not trying to be the smartest guy on the team uh i am definitely not the smartest guy on this new team it's it's uh an all-star crew and i'm just going to try and be part of it but uh it's very exciting it's a great opportunity and i'm very grateful to sam for extending it but also to all of you guys uh who have helped build banish to the pen into something that probably made me a lot more hireable <laughs> over the last couple months so well congratulations first and foremost matt we're very proud of you getting the call up to uh i'd say the major leagues that's a call up to the majors i'd say that yeah yeah, yeah. and uh also very proud of the fact like you say that uh we're now seeing some people from banished to the pen getting some bigger and, and higher profile gigs so that's really i mean that's kind of the purpose of this uh website in certain ways we wanted to give a platform to people who didn't necessarily have it so that's really great to see i'm proud of you in that respect and uh happy for you just as you know knowing you on social media and if i can call you a buddy call you a buddy so congratulations matt that's really great thanks thank you yeah yeah that's that's super cool um i hope you'll be sticking around in some form or another to just you know hang out and tell me when i'm overreacting when i call baseball teams crypto fascists Yeah. It'll be good if you stick around, I think, for everyone. Yeah, there's definitely a certain amount of we're upset we're losing you, but uh, proud of the fact that you're going on to a, a greener pasture, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's going to be great fun, but I will still be, you know, at least talking with other people who are writing on the site, behind the scenes, whatever help I can give, or talking through articles and telling you, Mikey, that actually that's an underreaction. They're just straight up fashion <laughs> most of the time. Well, and as part of the uh, agreement, we are allowed to have Matt uh, return on the podcast. I definitely made sure to put that in the contract. So uh, we will be allowed to have <laughs> you back uh, in the future. So with all kidding aside. So, well, 
congratulations, Matt, uh, and we're sorry to lose you, like I said, but uh, proud of you. So. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. Well, if we can plow ahead off that tough announcement uh, for the site, I did want to get into some baseball talk today on Episode 10. Uh, both of you guys have done some nice previews this week. Mikey, you did the Cleveland Indians, correct? And Matt, I you did... I did the Cleveland something. I don't remember the name of it. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. But I want to start with the... We, uh, I want to start with Cleveland this week because I think they are one of the more intriguing teams to me in Major League Baseball right now. They seem to have a very good pitching staff that maybe not everybody can name who's on it, but we all know that they have a good staff. They got some bats. They got some young prospects. So, so what are you seeing out of Cleveland this season? Well, you know, it'll be really interesting. Something I mentioned um, in the piece is that, you know, a lot of the different projection systems right now don't really know what to do with the Indians because of so much of their success last year was because they got, you know, just such great performances from Kluber and Brantley that were so just so much better than what they'd shown in the past. So, you know, I think the different projection systems don't know really how much credence to give that rolling over into uh, this season. But, I mean, even even if they get I think even worse sort of back to, you know, typical performances from those two guys, I think they could still be a really good team. And I think maybe, like, I I think I, I have them as the favorites in the Central. And the Central's hard to tell right now just because basically everybody but Minnesota is going to have a chance. You know, that, that division's really deep, but I think in terms of, you know, having youth and depth and talent, I think they really, I think they're the best team over there, I think. Okay, well, you started out with two names that uh, I want to put you on the spot a little bit about, uh, Kluber and Brantley. Oh, sure. Uh, what are you expecting yeah. out of both of those names this year? I know uh, Kluber has been a name that's been around a little bit. I, I don't think any of us saw Cy Young potential in him necessarily, and Brantley certainly broke out and had uh, kind of the year maybe with the talent we've been expecting. So, what are you seeing from them in 2015? Yeah, you know, it's it'll be really interesting. I think Brantley last year, he really hit with more power than he ever had before, and he hit, uh, you know, the breaking pitches with power and better than he had ever before. And that seems like the sort of skill that once it's developed, you know, it sort of sticks around, although, I'm, you know, it, it, it's hard to tell. Um, so... I would think that Brantley has a pretty good shot of maybe not having a seven-war season again, but, you know, being a very, very good player. Um, Kluber may be a little harder to tell, but I think I, I think he's going to be, you know, a good pitcher at the very least. I don't, think, I don't see him, you know, cratering by any means. So I think they can repeat to an extent. I don't think, I don't think either of them is going to be a seven-war player again, though. Okay. I, I could ask you uh, almost about every player on the 25-man roster, but two more that i got to ask you about are uh, Carlos yeah. Carrasco and Jason Kipnis. Kind of different situations. Carrasco yeah. broke out, certainly, it feels like in the second half last year, if nothing else, and was, you know, close to dominant. Kipnis, we've seen be, you know, a down-ballot uh, MVP candidate coming off of just a terrible year in 2014. Where, where are you seeing these guys this season? Well, you know, I think... Carrasco 
had had just such a great second half. And actually, you know, he had, as, if I remember correctly, basically as soon he had like a terrible first month or so, but then after that he was great. Um, so I think I wouldn't be surprised if he's that good again, but I wouldn't necessarily expect it. I think just I think like Kluber, he's gonna you know have have a bit of a harder 2015, but I don't think it'll be bad by any. I think I think they're both gonna be very good pitchers. Uh, Kipnis is interesting because we've seen before with like somebody like Dan Ugla, where you know it just goes away that sort of talent, but he is in his prime right now, age wise, um, and I. You know, I think it's good to be optimistic. I don't see any reason to be, you know, terribly pessimistic about it. I think he had some weird Babbitt issues last year, but um, yeah, I, I think he can. You know, I think he can contribute, and I think the team is deep enough that you know, even if he has a struggle of a year again, they won't be in terrible shape. Well, that sounds good, Matt. Do you have any questions for Mikey? Whew. Uh, well. I guess, first of all, what do you make of the left side of the infield? Uh, just looking at it, you know, not only did they get very inconsistent sort of performances out of that group last year, but I don't know if we know exactly how long it's going to be Jose Ramirez at shortstop before it's Francisco Lindor and what to expect from him when he reaches the majors. Uh, so what do you think, or what did you uncover how much should we believe in jose ramirez is probably a good question to be asking and i don't have any yeah. idea what the answer is i think jose ramirez um he's a glove first guy you know i don't think he'll kill you with the bat but he won't do you any favors either he's a you know he's not a disreputable nine hole hitter in the al um but he does i he, he can flash the gloves so i think he'll help them there certainly more than estrubal cabrera <laughs> um, and I mean, Cleveland needs you know all the defensive help they can get, really. Uh, but uh, Lindor is also a glove first guy, and I think Lindor has a higher offensive ceiling. Um, but that shouldn't—I mean, you know—probably not as soon as he gets called up, which I would expect to be around June or so. You know, I—I I, think—I think it will be Ramirez for the first couple months of the season, but I don't think they'll be too reticent to call up Lindor and Lindor should be basically the same as Ramirez you know glove first not a terrible hitter but won't do you any favors um but it's just that you know you want to get him I think getting him at bats is more important than getting Ramirez at bats for that team so yeah I I yeah I I think I I don't I, don't, I wouldn't expect much from shortstop for them this year but it, if it's Lindor and you know he looks okay then I think you know he still has the kind of uh, you know all-star feeling that uh, prospect people said they have Chisenhall I think is just I think he sort of reached his ceiling as a you know average third baseman he's you know he's I don't think there's any reason to expect anything fantastic from him, but I think he's I, I think he's gonna have I think he's safer than Kipnis in terms of, you know, having that just a you know, crazy sort of bad year like that. But I, I think he's just 
going to be an average third baseman. Uh, I think that's his career peak, I think. Yeah. Well, he's certainly safer than Kipnis in that they haven't invested in him the way they did in Kipnis last spring. Right. Uh, which is... It'll be interesting to see. They've got their team extension. I mean, no one does the spring extension yeah. thing more than the Indians do it more or earlier or more aggressively. Uh, and they've already got a lot of those guys locked up, but now they are looking at especially Kluber and maybe Kluber would rather prove that he can do it again and make mega bucks. But uh, I bet they're going to be looking at trying to lock him up this you know, this month sometime if they can. Yeah, they have a lot of young pitchers who, you know, they're going to have to think about at some point. They have, they have a, a good offensive core locked up. Uh, yeah. Gomes has an extension. Kipnis has an extension. Uh, but, you know, really, they're sort of, I don't see how they can really offer anybody giant bucks until Swisher and Bourne are off their books in two years. Okay, well, I want to take a step back, if I can now, and just, you said uh, in the beginning part that you have the Indians as the favorite, or Cleveland as the Indian. or pardon me, I'm stepping all over <laughs> my words here. You have Cleveland as the favorites in the division. Thank you. That's the, that's the way I was trying to say it. So, uh, why is that, I guess, is the way to say it? Because so many other people will default have, you know, Detroit's coming off a pretty solid season, and they... You know, haven't gotten much worse right. to a certain degree. The Royals were in the World Series last year. I mean, you can argue their offseason better or worse. Well, what is it about Cleveland that you think makes them the be- the team the best on you know in the division right now? Well, you know, I think if you look at the Tigers, obviously they're older. Uh, you know, if I mean, you look at somebody like Victor Martinez, the odds of him having that crazy year like he had last year is pretty low. Uh, there's a chance Verlander takes another step back. You know, I mean, after, you know, and Scherzer's gone. So that, that pitching staff isn't really like a crazy plus like it was before. You know, you have Sanchez and Price, and, you know, you don't know what you're getting from Verlander after that. And then, you know, four and five, it's like Alfredo Simon, and I'm, I can't even think of it right now. Uh, but, you know, and Cabrera is going to be good, but he's old and he's going to be hurt. Martinez is good, but he's old and he might get hurt. You know, and so there's just, I think there's a bigger chance for things to go really, really wrong in Detroit this year. Um, and, you know, the Royals, the, you know, the Royals still, you know, James Shields is gone. I think they're a lot worse this year than they were last year. You know, um, if, you know, who knows what you're going to get from Hosmer and, you know, Moustakis and guys like that. The White Sox have done some interesting things, but I don't really think they have the pitching behind Sale still. And Samarja, Sale and Samarja, after that, I'm not sure that they have the pitching. So, I mean, I think all those teams are flawed, including Cleveland, but I think Cleveland just seems like least flawed. Or, you know, they seem like they have the depth at, you know, offensively, and with the pitching to survive hiccups better than, you know, Detroit and Chicago and Kansas City can. Yeah, and, and well, and there was also, what did they win, 85 games, I think, last year, which... Yeah, they weren't think... bad. No, they were, yeah, right. Yeah, and that was, yes, they got a lot of pitching performances, I think, are going to back up a little, uh, including Trevor Bauer, 
But they also had the worst imaginable outcomes from Ryan Rayburn, uh, David Murphy, Nick Swisher, Michael Bourne. I mean, I don't, I don't think those four can combine yeah, to be worse than they were last year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to say with Swisher and Bourne because Swisher and Bourne, I don't think will ever be above average players again. But if they can be, you know, average-ish, the, yeah, Cleveland should be fine, I think. Yeah. Oh, and, I mean, adding Brandon Moss sort of ensures them against those things not working out, too. But, you know, I think they're... I don't know. I guess I just think the offense underachieved last year, got a little better this winter, and so should should be quite a bit better this year. And I compare that to the rest of the division, and I'm saying, you know, if the Tigers get their big guys healthy, maybe they're better offensively. Uh, but I don't think the White Sox are. I know the Royals aren't. I don't think the Twins are. So when you start with the best offense in the division, and then we know that that pitching staff is not only, you know, 90 guys deep, but managed by Terry Francona, who will absolutely, you know, mix and match as much as he needs to. No pit, no yeah. manager in the AL is making more pitching changes, getting guys more rest, all of that. Yeah, uh, no, he, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he was uh, so. he was aggressive with his bullpen, like he was in the playoffs. I mean, that's how you, that's how it sort of looks in terms of. Usage. All season. He just managed like he was in the playoffs with his bullpen all year, which is great. Yeah. It was wild. Yeah. I liked that a lot. All right. Well, before we finish up the Cleveland talk, uh, I would love to get a bold prediction from you from them for their season and a win total for 2015. Oh, gosh. Um, uh, you know, I might have to go and disagree with something Matt said just now and say that I think. Bauer takes a big step forward this year. I think I would not be shocked at all if Trevor Bauer has a great year. And in my piece, I said 88 wins, and that still sounds pretty good. So 88 wins, first place in the Central. Wow. Okay. Very bullish. I like it. I very much like it. Okay, Matt. Uh, I want to, if we can plow ahead here and kind of change the direction of the baseball talk that we're doing here. Uh, I know I mentioned earlier that you did the Yankees preview. Did I get that right this time? Yes. Okay, yeah. good. I got that right. Uh, and that leads me to kind of the main place that I want to start is that goes into Yohan Moncada, the big Uber Cuban prospect that was signed. I guess I don't know if it's quite official yet, but it's all, you know, it's unofficially official. Uh, going to Boston for $63 million total. I, I want to pin that uh, to the Yankees, one, just to ask you, one, if you were surprised they didn't. Uh, secure the services of Mankata, and I want. Oh. I also want to open it up a little bit more to uh, some Cuban baseball talk with some of the players that we've seen uh, both recently and in the last few years. So, uh, Matt, I guess just get, I'll give you the floor first. Just Yoan Mankata and Cuban baseball. Sure. Well, first of all, yeah, I was definitely surprised that the Yankees didn't make that play. Um, and surprised that if they were going to have it taken from them, that they let it be the Red Sox. Uh, I think in most cases, too much is made of, you got to sign this guy just so that division rival X doesn't get him. But, um, you know, when it's them and the Red Sox and the Dodgers, and the Dodgers bow out, I think the Yankees have to win that, because the Yankees are so clearly 
so far behind the Red Sox in terms of present and future talent. I mean, it's it's pretty ugly in New York right now. Um, and I don't know if they... I mean, it's it sounds like Brian Cashman wanted to just shell out the extra money, land Moncada, move on, and that uh, the ownership group stopped him. And I don't know if that's because they just are finally finally actually reining him in and saying, no, we we really mean it this time. We're not going to spend $200 million every year to win because we shouldn't have to. Or whether they're, you know, somehow convinced that it was a bad investment. And it might have been. I mean, we should be honest about the fact that this is a 19-year-old who's costing $70 million. I mean, he's costing double to the team. Uh, he doesn't get it all, but he's costing double what Ioannis Suspedes was paid. Uh, 60% more than Yaziel Puig. Uh, more than double what Jorge Soler got. And maybe you say Soler is or was further from the majors than Mancata. I don't think so. Um, but, you know, it, roughly equal there. And Suspedes was ready to jump right in. And Puig was almost there, too. Um and so, yeah, the ceiling is insane with this guy. There's probably been a failure just on a, a general level of all of us on the Internet to acknowledge the risk that comes with him. Um, but it's a risk the Yankees are in the perfect position to take. Uh, money's going to start trickling off their books. Guys are getting old. Guys' contracts are starting to come to an end. They successfully took the year off from major free agency, except for Chase Headley. Uh, they were in a spot where they could have shored up an infield that does not have a single answer for the next five or ten years. Um, and they passed on it. Yeah, and, and you used an interesting word there, risk. And I think that leads into kind of the area that I want to take this conversation, where when are we going to see the tipping point with these Cuban players where – the risk, like you say, of the amount of money that you've got to shell out it is not going to be recouped. I mean, it looks like all these players that have been signed for big money in the last few years, you know, you mentioned Cespedes and Soler and Jose Abreu and so many of these players, it feels like they've been worth it. But when do we reach the point where, okay, guys, we're going to start seeing a lot more Yuneski Mayas than, you know, Jorge Soler's? Well, and we don't even know, you know, which side of the line Jorge Soler is going to fall on yet. But it certainly seems like we're getting big swaths of elite Cuban talent entering the market at once. And it's probably distorting the market and setting us up for some teams to overpay guys who aren't that good in the not-so-distant future. When that's going to happen exactly, I don't know. Uh, I think... As the U.S.-Cuba normalization thing keeps progressing, we might see just a, a skyrocketing volume of these guys making their way to an eligible place to sign. And then the pressure is going to be on teams to do some really good scouting, you know, really good player evaluation. Because um, Cuban League, you know, translated stats have been more trustworthy than I think we thought they'd be so far. Uh, they said Jose Abreu would be a monster, and 
Jose Abreu is a monster. But I think in general, we don't know how to translate those things yet. We don't know, you know, when you're scouting a player facing Cuban or even international competition, a lot of pitchers are topping out at 88. And you can start to see bat speed, but you don't know how the swing's going to change when the bat has to catch up to 94 and whether that's going to work out or not. And there are definitely guys. We're going to start seeing guys, whether it's Yasmani Tomas or it's some guy who's six months from signing right now uh, who can't do it, whose swing gets completely off and long and uh, unbalanced and ugly when they have to face guys who can dot 94 on the outside corner and snap off a breaking ball. Yeah, and I'm... It's, uh, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I, I'm sort of running out of steam here, but the idea is these guys are big mysteries, and a lot of them in a row have panned out, and it's hard to tell whether that's because we've tapped a, a you know, a, a line of talent that we didn't realize was as superior as it is, or whether it's because we're getting all the best apples at the top of the barrel, and the further we go down, you know, we're going to be paying the same thing for lesser and lesser quality. Yeah, and I was saying to you guys both off air before we started recording that uh, it seems like there are a lot of parallels between what happened with Japanese baseball. The first few players came over, Hideo Nomo, and some of the other guys came over and were great. And then as you, like you just eloquently put, as you got deeper into the uh, bucket of apples, you started seeing a lot more guys like the Kazmatsuis and uh, Hiroshi Nakajimas and, and the guys that just couldn't translate from you know being stars in Japan to over in the States. So, And I'm wondering how long until we start seeing that happen. Yeah. Well, um, I think there is an inherent difference just in that I don't, I've never been to Cuba and can't speak to the average of the population or anything, but the guys we've seen come over so far have been phenomenal athletes, just big, strong, fast, easy, you know, there's power there. Japanese players were under a lot more pressure and had a lot harder time, you know, sort of accommodating to major league ball because a lot of them were stretched athletically to match what else was going on in the league. Um, or, you know, and maybe we weren't getting the very best of the Japanese athletes either. I'm not sure. But it sure seems like what we've got so far are some guys who could play ball anywhere in the world. Uh, and I don't know if that's because that's what they have in Cuba and they're going to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming, or it's because we're getting all the you know, the guys who really stand out as soon as they walk onto the field right away. Uh, and sooner or later, we're going to start seeing guys who are struggling to match that power or struggling to match that speed. We've definitely seen some of the players get a little heavier footed than we thought they would when they first showed up. So, you know, it's a guessing game there, at least for me. But uh, that seems to be one difference. Yeah, that's a great point. Mikey, I want to I get you in here to just get your thoughts. Oh, well, um, I was just going to mention that I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the um, failures of some Japanese players had a lot to do with, you know, certain soft factors of, you know, the giant cultural shift, you know, that I would think would be lessened 
for players coming from Cuba. I mean, certainly, you know, the United States and Cuba are, you know, hugely different culturally, but I mean, in terms of, you know, inside the clubhouse, you know, in terms of being around guys just, you know, speaking Spanish and stuff like that, it's, I would assume, a lot easier for uh, uh, guys from Cuba to adjust than, you know, guys from Japan or Korea. Yeah, that's a great call. <laughs> yeah, those are both great points, guys. Is there anything else that we need to, uh, that we want to touch on before we wrap up uh, this part of this topic? Oh, I was just going to ask you guys. Um, this is, is the answer to this question. Obviously, involves a lot of foreign relation things that you know we are like unqualified to talk about. But um, would you expect there to be something resembling like the you know South American baseball academies in Cuba in like the next ten, fifteen years? I think teams are going to want in, especially because there's been some trouble in venezuela that might have teams wanting out of there um but i'm you know on that timeline i don't know if it's going to be possible you know if it's when the question is hard science i always lean toward things are going to happen faster than we think when the question is a soft science i think they're going to happen slower and this is definitely you know diplomacy is definitely a soft science so it wouldn't surprise me if 10 years from now we're still waiting on this to really get resolved but i could be way off yeah and i just i wonder you know for the 30 teams to try to go in there and put in 30 academies one is the country big enough and two it it would the economic price of having to spend that money to build a facility and keep it up and going would it be worth it if you were competing against all those teams i'm not saying i'm just kind of you know asking a hypothetical or you know yeah but well and the yeah, next yeah. CBA might answer a lot of those questions too. Whatever we land on for the changing way that international players are acquired, you know, folded in, is there going to be one world draft, two drafts, you know, whatever that turns out to be is probably going to affect what teams calculate the economic advantage of that kind of thing to be. And it just seems to me that if you're not one of the first teams with an academy down there, it, it, you probably get to the point where it's not worth it. You know, it, I don't know. You're not getting any type of an advantage being the 30th one down there with an academy. Probably not. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's that's true. So, but we'll see. I think it's fascinating, and I think it's great that you know the game is going to get a whole other country's worth of athletes. You know, to make the game better. I mean, this is their national sport. I I think I don't. I think it's more popular than soccer. So, I think it'd be terrific if we can get more talent coming in from another resource and another pipeline. Yeah. So, all right, guys. Next topic I wanted to cover, and we wanted to cover this week. Uh, Mikey, you had mentioned uh, there had been a few pieces on analytics recently that you had read uh, that you kind of wanted to open the floor with and talk about. So uh, here you go. Roll. Cool. Thank you. Um, There was that uh, ESPN rankings of every organization uh, in the four major sports in terms of, you know, their acceptance of analytics and what they do with analytics. And there was also a great piece on Deadspin by Kyle Wagner that was sort of uh, critiquing the whole sort of hype culture surrounding analytics that we see in sports right now, I guess. And I was just wondering your guys' thoughts on the idea that, you know, there's no sort of money ball world anymore where, you know, there's one obvious thing that, you know, there's one team is doing that's much smarter than what everyone else is doing 
right? Like in baseball, at least everyone is really smart, plus or minus the Phillies. Um, so you get to this point where everything, you know, everybody's smart, so everybody's keeping everything secret, and they're just talking about what they're doing. And there seems to me to be a certain subset of fans who just like eat that all up, which is odd to me. Because, I mean, it's easy to forget that, you know, baseball teams are inherently corporations who, you know, just try to get the best press and publicity for themselves. And there's no way to know whether what the Astros are doing in terms of their numbers are better than anything that, you know, the Cardinals are doing with their numbers. But the Astros are ranked higher on something because it's, it seems that the Astros are just louder about using those numbers. Right? I mean, am I? Do you guys think I'm just wrong about that, or, or, because it is weird that we have like, we have no idea what these teams are doing, really. But it's just you know, and obviously the fandom right now is just so captivated by the idea of analytics that I think, I think the sort of sports culture is just way too, uh, maybe susceptible to just buying into whatever teams would like to tell them about their use of those numbers. Well, I think you make a great point, first and foremost, with just who's the one making the decision and who's the one making doing the rankings. You know, I mean, is it somebody that's friends with Baseball Prospectus, just to throw it out there? Because they've had a lot of BP guys go to Houston recently. Well, maybe that'll move them up the rankings if you have a lot of respect, and we all do, for Kevin Goldstein and Mike Fast and the work they've done. Obviously, you're going to be, well, they obviously are analytical guys. I know them. I know their work. So if they're part of the front office there, then obviously they've got to have a lot of other guys that are analytically inclined. So I worry that it's a, it's more of a superficial, and you can't really know what's going on, like you say, because nobody knows what's really going on except for the people that are working there. Yeah, and obviously they're going to you know spin whatever they have to the best possible way they can. Yeah. Well, and I think... There are a couple of things to it. One is certainly that teams are, you know, the, the quietest teams about analytics are more committed to it than you think, and the loudest yeah. might be less so. Uh, so that's that's one interesting part. Another, they just talked about this with Brian Grosnick on today's Effectively Wild, which was about the Marlins, and Brian said, you know, he feels like the Marlins might be even below the Phillies at this point and the least, you know, the least analytically savvy team in the majors. But there's this baseline level that no one really drops below anymore. You know, nobody misunderstands on base percentage. Nobody misunderstands aging curves, at least not radically, not the way that they used to. Uh, You don't see 33-year-old corner outfielders getting signed to monster deals anymore um and then you even saw it with james shields you know he hits the market and he's he's really good and he's been really good for a really long time and there's really no good evidence that he's going to suddenly stop being good or stop being one of the most durable pitchers in the league other than that he's 33 and he's starting to hit that wall and while i think the Padres actually got a little bit of a steal in years past. I think Shields probably would have gotten a deal that looked a lot like John Lester's and we'd all be making fun of it. 
Um, so everybody's taking those steps, and therefore the marginal advantage teams get from each thing that they learn, each you know new thing that their their staff uncovers. It's probably smaller. Um, at the same time, the technology is just racing forward, and we read articles about teams that make their guys uh, train with neuro training video games, uh, you know, to sharpen their reflexes test their vision, all of that. Uh, we read about teams that are trying to sort of press the boundaries of injury prevention, and study it and you know break it down biomechanically and all of those things. Maybe we're moving into a new phase that's more physical or more economic and less on the field in terms of how those analytics have impact. And that probably will I think it'll maintain some value for the teams that are good at it I also think it'll make those things progressively less interesting to most fans uh, because you know being able to say we just happen to know that this guy has a longer or 10% less strained and striated uh, on their collateral ligament is not as interesting as saying this guy actually gets on base a lot more than you think because he draws walks. You know, you can't see that on the field. So it's not probably as enjoyable for us. And so analytics is going to start to be less of a story over time because teams are going to be doing more things that sports fans aren't going to want to talk about as much. Yeah, I I, um, I wanted to mention that uh, Red Sox neuro scouting thing. Um, because I, I, I assume you guys both sort of took a look at that. I think it was a Boston Globe article about it. Yep. Um, and it seems interesting, but there also, as far as I know, and I'm no expert, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of real concrete, you know, reason to believe that it works, you know, or will work, which is fine. Um, yeah. But, you know, like, and, and that's the sort of thing I mean with, you know, fans are, are just so susceptible to something that sounds like it's forward thinking, even if it's, you know, even if the advantage that comes from it is non-existent. I mean, you know, the Red Sox certainly have enough money to, you know, throw darts at the board in terms of, you know, what might give them a, any sort of advantage, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we should all assume that it's, you know, like it's a fait accompli that, you know, those things are going to happen, right? I mean, if this was the 16th century, you know, uh, uh, Spain wouldn't have sponsored Ponce de Leon looking for the founding youth. It would be the New York Yankees. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... You know? and, like, I think a lot of teams, you know, have the money to take those chances, not even just big market teams anymore. Um, the flood of national TV revenue is giving some teams the ability to spend a lot of extra money on the field and some teams the opportunity to take chances. You know, the Braves went and basically if you had a good but damaged, either by injury or underperformance, or starter reliever questions or makeup questions. If you had such a pitching prospect, you don't anymore. He's now an Atlanta Brave. And 
the Braves are not a massive market. They didn't used to be able to take those chances, but they can now, and they did, and they you know said, we're going to unload, we're going to aim for this year and kind of rebuild around this extraordinarily risky core of players, uh, probably because they have some reason to believe that those players are going to work out, whether that's injury studies or just... Uh, risk-reward analyses that their analytics department's doing, one way or another, they're saying, it's all right for us to acquire a bunch of 20-year-olds with scars on their elbows. Uh, and I don't think I don't think most teams in markets like Atlanta could have done that 10, 15 years ago. All right, guys. Well, I, I guess that's a good place to wrap up the analytics talk there. I think that was pretty solid right there. So uh, last question before we wrap up. Uh, this week, something lighthearted. You guys have both mentioned your biggest pet peeve, so we're going to ask a new question this week. Uh, what are you most looking forward to with baseball in 2015? And uh, either one of you guys can start, whoever's ready. Well, you know, for my pet peeve, I, I said uh, people who don't like Yasiel Puig, and I'm tempted to just say, you know, Yasiel Puig um, again, but uh, I won't. Instead, I'll just say the Padres. Because That's the a Padres good are super interesting. Um, you know, they have like this weird outfield with, you know, Will Myers in center and Justin Upton, who will probably be great, and Matt Kemp, who, you know, who knows. And they have like no infield at all. And they have, you know, like James Fields and Andrew Kashner and Tyson Ross, who could all be good or very good so i mean just, i'm just gonna everything that happens with the san diego padres this season i'm gonna be super interested in because it's just so weird agreed good call yeah they'll be fun um uh, i think this is probably cheating this is exceptionally broad but i'm really looking forward to the american league um i just think it's going to be a complete I don't know what word to use I'm a little afraid of accidentally using obscenity I'm a little afraid of not capturing the idea that I'm trying to get across but I don't think other than yeah other than the twins I don't think there's a team that doesn't have a chance in the American League this year and even the teams that don't have great chances like the Royals Yankees maybe Astros and A's there are all these interesting questions that just dot every single roster. I don't think there's a good team in the American League, and I don't think there's... Well, there is. Like I said, the Twins are not going anywhere. Not this year. But it's wild. <laughs> We've, we spent a lot of the winter talking about how good the AL Central had gotten. All the changes they'd made, the White Sox, I'm really impressed by their offseason. And yet I sit down here... And I kind of think the AL Central could be the weakest division in the league, which is so backward. It's yeah. so strange. But yeah, they're, no, you know, certainly. And I mean, the Red Sox finished last last year. If I have to pick an AL East favorite, it's probably the Red Sox. Uh, when's the last time the Mariners made the playoffs? But if I have to pick an AL West favorite, it's probably the Mariners. It's all these teams that you're not used to being that good who. Maybe they're still not that good, but they're actually probably better than their competition. Um, and it's just going to be—it's going to be really cool to see how some of this unfolds. I don't know 
what's going to happen in any division, and I don't have a real good feel of who will finish last in any division, and that's interesting. I don't think I've ever seen a league more ensnared in parody. I don't mean to make that sound like a bad thing, though. I think it's going to be fun. Uh, well, even if you you know say that there are, are those you know quote unquote favorites in each division, like the wild card race is going to be insane. Yeah, you know, like the wild card game could be like you know the White Sox and the Astros. Well, the wild card game could be a like seven part series because six teams <laughs> finished with eighty four wins. So, yeah, very, very, very true. Could be uh, very interesting in the AL this year. I'm going to go with uh, kind of along the same lines, but uh, uh, the trade deadline in July I think could be very interesting this year. You could see a lot of teams with, you know, we've got a lot of starting pitchers that are going to be free agents at the end of the year. I mean, are we going to see some Cuetos and, you know, anybody from the Nationals rotation on the market? Are we going to, and with so many teams looking to be so competitive this season, you know, is the supply going to, you know, really be a lot weaker than the demand? And how's that trade deadline going to go? So I think that's going to be a fascinating topic uh, come July this year. Yeah, definitely. And it was interesting even this winter. Um, more and more teams are falling into buyer seller categories less and less. I think they're, you know, a lot of genuine trades are being made where, you know, that's a great asset point. value is being shifted according to each team's need. So you really could see Jordan Zimmerman or Tanner Roark or somebody traded mid season from a nationals team that clearly has world series aspirations because they want to improve some other part of the roster. We haven't had trades like that since the death of the reserve clause, at least not consistently. Yeah, so. I mean, everybody surprised, or Boston surprised everybody last season doing some player-for-player player swaps. I think you make a great point. Are we going to continue to see that you know, this season, or are we going to go back to the traditional, okay, I'm a buyer, I'm going to give you prospect for player to be on my roster type trades? I, I think right. you make a great point. Yeah, and what... I've, this could almost be a thing we're looking forward to unto itself, but what are the Red Sox going to do? I mean, they, I love stockpiling hitters. I am the biggest curmudgeon about pitchers. Keep them, you know, keep them. Uh, I'll find a way to get through the season. I'm going to try to have the best offense in the league. And even I am going, yeah, you can't have this many outfielders. It doesn't work. (laughs) So I don't know, you know, I mean, the easy answer is somebody's going to end up in the minor leagues and uh, somebody else is going to fail and eventually you know, someone will fizzle out, be traded for a low-level prospect. Maybe that's what Jackie Bradley Jr. is already doing. But it's an awfully, awfully complicated situation there and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch, especially now that Mancata's in the mix muddying the water on the infield too. Yeah, that's a great point. Everything you just said could be said about the Chicago Cubs, too. We could have used them as a great example, too. How are all those bats going to shake out this season? And, you know, is this the year Chris Bryant breaks out? And is Addison Russell the shortstop? And does Javier yeah. Baez cut down on the strikeouts? I, that's another team that I could have made that my answer, too. I mean, they're going to be a fascinating team to just see how all that works out this year. Well, and if they actually turn out to be good, they're almost going to have to just from, I mean, I don't want to make it sound like Theo Epstein sitting there listening to sports talk radio, deciding whether to trade someone, but they're going to get to a point where 
the value of wins down the stretch is going to be so high, they're going to have to entertain trading one of the top like five or ten prospects in baseball uh, to make a midseason upgrade. And those trades are always very exciting. So, Great point. Okay, guys, uh, I think we're going to wrap um, it up can here. I, can I actually add one more? Go ahead. Matt, one more thing <laughs> I'm looking forward to this season. Um, uh, Matt Trueblood writing for Baseball Prospectus. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Can good. I say Prospectus again? Prospectus. Ooh. Yeah. Baseball Prospectus. That was a good one. That was very good. There you good. go, Ken. So uh, with that, guys, let's play, let's. Uh, I think we're going to wrap up here for this week. Uh, give you a spot for your plugs. Let's start with uh, let's start with Mikey, and then we'll go with uh, and let Matt say goodbye to everybody. Mikey. Oh sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to write stuff for Banish to the Pen. Uh, I forget what my Twitter handle is. I'm never <laughs> on there, so don't worry about it. Um, but yeah. Keep an eye out for Mikey Poli in your baseball things. Yeah, that's good. Very, very cool. Okay, Matt, say goodbye. All right. Um, well, first of all, now you can find my work at Baseball Prospectus. My first article today was free uh, for everyone. I don't know how often that'll be true and how often things will be behind the paywall over there. Probably the majority will be the latter. Um, I want to look, if you're listening to this, if you found us by being interested in effectively wild, there's really no excuse anymore for not being a prospectus subscriber. It is about a $7,000 value, but they only charge $40 for it. Normally, uh, they're not even doing that right now. If you're, if you're willing to go the route, uh, go to the prospectus website, click on the banner at the top make a $10 uh, deposit at DraftKings and you get a one-year subscription to Prospectus for just that. Uh, it'll be worth your your money the first day that your account's unlocked. It really will. Um, beyond that, I'm on Twitter, M-A Trueblood, and I'll be around, hopefully back on here at some point, and who knows where else. Um I do want to just say thanks to everyone who's done stuff around Banished to the Pen. I don't know I don't know how well we've told the story here, but basically I used to relentlessly spam the Effectively Wild Facebook group with all my stuff when I was writing up my .wordpress.com blog and you know, my readership was strictly those people basically. <laughs> so, I'd send things over there and Occasionally, someone would take a look, and Scott Kramer, who's totally behind the scenes, I he's maybe written one actual thing on the site, but he has been great to all of us. Uh, he basically posted on one of those posts that I put put up uh, that he'd be willing to host the site if I wanted to move off of WordPress itself, uh, which was very generous. I wasn't sure if I was going to do it or not, but other people chimed in and said, I think Mikey was the first one, said, you know, I'd also love to write and don't write enough to support a blog on its own, so you'd have interest, and it snowballed from there. Um, it's been a really cool experience. We've done 
some things that I don't know if I thought we'd be able to do or do as well. Uh, we've got a lot of different people. Obviously, we've had whatever, 15 to 20 podcast guests in three months for you. So that's something. Um, to Mikey, to Ken, to Ryan, everybody who's who's helped build the site from scratch and done a lot of behind-the-scenes work, a lot of copy editing, a lot of designing. Ken's made the site beautiful. <laughs> and I'll... Uh, I'll love prospectus and having my name under that BP symbol, but I will miss all the awesome things that are banished to the pen style wise. And, um, yeah, just thanks to everyone. And obviously, like I said, I'll still be around. I'll be reading a lot and chipping in with ideas where I can, but, uh, it's, it's been great. So thank you all. Well said a little bit. Yeah, well said. Well said, Matt. And uh, great job here. Uh, as I said earlier, very proud of the fact that uh, you're not going to the next step. And we're seeing people using this as a nice platform to uh, get bigger readership. So that's really great. Uh, don't forget about us over at BP now. Uh, <laughs> we're all looking for the call up, so don't forget about us. Uh-huh. We're a good farm team, Sam, Ben. You know, just keep us in mind. It'll be like it's... the Cuban explosion. It'll be good. That's oh, definitely. Great parallel. Well said. Yeah. Well said. So, uh, anyways, I'll I don't be know. I'll the guy who, I'll be that mythical figure that, you know, that I'll be the point where it's like, oh, no, we've gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay. Well, uh, Matt and Mikey, great job this week. Uh, both of you guys have been doing some great work on the site. Obviously, Matt, uh, we'll have you back on in the future, and uh, happy trails. Thanks. And that was episode 10 of the Banished to the Pen podcast with Matt Trueblood and Mikey Poley. I want to thank them both for joining me today. I want to thank them both for their hard work on the site. And uh, I want to congratulate again, Matt. Great job. We're very proud of you. And uh, hopefully more of us will continue in your footsteps. So, well, great job. Furthermore, uh, I'd also like to thank, uh, as I do every week, I'd like to thank the writers, the editors, the contributors, uh, the technical staff, people uh, behind the scenes uh, who do a lot of work. Very proud of the Banish to the Pen site and what's uh, the content we're creating. So great job, guys. Keep up the hard work. With that, episode 10 is a wrap. I'm your host, Ryan Sullivan, at NatsGM.com on Twitter, reminding you, be nice to your fellow listeners. Yeah, those are both great points, guys, and, and things that I hadn't um, necessarily and, and thought sorry, of. Sorry, Matt. Go ahead. Sorry. Brian? No, I was just saying those I, are both... All right, stop. Those are both great points, guys. <laughs>